0: The passage today is 1 John 1, 1 1-4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. If you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn to 1 John while I adjust. I'm short. All right, there we go. So we are continuing our study through the Catholic epistles. So these are just the epistles to the church, not really specific epistles. So that's why they call them Catholic, it's for the whole church. Um... So we're in in uh, we finished up Second Peter, took a small break after that, and now we are in uh, the book of First John, First John, and we'll look at the first four verses this morning. So let me pray for us, and then we'll we'll jump right in. Father in heaven, we uh, again we we thank you for gathering us again in your presence. Um, what a humbling thought that is, that, it, that we are in your presence right now. And so I pray, God, that you would help us to be attentive to what you have to show us this morning from your word, that you would open our eyes to behold the wonderful and good and beautiful truth that you have for us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as many of you know, I enjoy a good book. And the way that I approach a new book is I read the back or I read the inside dust cover to get an idea of what the book is about. So they'll give you a a brief summary of it. Uh, Then I read the blurbs on the back because I like to know what other people think about the particular book that I'm about to buy. So I'll read their comments. And so then if I'm satisfied with all of that, then I will open the book up to the table of contents and then I will read through what uh, what the chapters are going to be about. And usually by that time I've purchased it. So, so I, when I get the book, I, I then do something that I'm sure, uh, or I imagine, probably most people skip in the book, and that is I read that part at the very beginning of the book called the preface or the prologue. And so the the preface is meant to to set you up as a reader on, on where the author intends to take you in his or her writing. So it always helps me to read that to kind of get my mind around where this book is about to take me. Well, this is what we, we see happening in 1st John chapter 1, 1 through 4. It, it's, it's the preface or the prologue of John's entire letter here. And, and what this, this preface does, instead of introducing us to its author or introducing us to the audience or even beginning with thanksgiving for those that he's writing to, instead, John is letting his readers know the what and the why of his letter, and he just jumps right into it, which has everything to do with with this Christological reality of God becoming flesh, and then the implications, that reality of God becoming flesh— has on those who claim to follow Christ. So take, for instance, the two-part structure of John's letter, both parts making clear claims to this Christological reality. Part 1, which takes place from chapter 1, verse 5, all the way to chapter 3, verse 10, deals primarily with the fact that God is light. And then part 2, which takes place from chapter 3, verse 11, chapter 5, verse 21, to the end of the book, deals primarily with the fact that God is love. So in both parts of John's letter, we get clarity on what God has done for his people by sending Jesus as the light of the world and his love for humanity. And so then John takes those two parts, he takes those two realities, and then he compares them to what the world has to offer us. He says, here is the gospel. Here is what God has done. And here is the world. And here is what the world has to offer. And I can guarantee you that the world comes up short every time. So in one through four, verses one through four that we're looking at this morning, they give us an introduction into this. So I want to look at these verses in three ways this morning. First, looking at the facts of the message. Second, looking at the reality of the message. And third, looking at the hope of the message. So the facts of the message, the reality of the message, and the hope of the message. So the facts of the message. So anytime we jump into a new book, you know it's always important that you have to ask certain things about the book that is actually a wise thing to do. And so one of the ways uh, to do this is to ask certain, what I call investigative questions of the text so that it grounds us into into within its framework framework so the first question that we would write which is I mean what, what we would ask which is really important is who is writing this who is writing this so the first thing that most writers of the letters of the New Testament do is they introduce themselves that's how uh, letters were written during this time um, and they introduce themselves with this salutation on the front end of their letter so I, Paul, am writing this letter to you, or I, Peter, am writing this letter to you. So, again, the Apostle Paul is good about this, Peter is good about this, other gospel writers are good about this, but not so much with the letters of John. First, John does not have the typical characteristics of a Greco-Roman letter. So a bit more investigation must take place in order to pin down who is writing this. But it's actually, when you start to do this exercise, it's actually pretty fascinating the way in which John's identity is found through his letter writing. And that's because of how similar in style and organization it is to the fourth gospel, which is also attributed to John, the gospel according to John. So one commentator said, in the New Testament, it is difficult to find two works more similar in expression. And the reason that uh, he says that is you see all of these themes and these uh, these uh, different uh, repeated words in both of the letters in John. Just to give you an example, that the, the words light, darkness, and life uh, are all themes and words that you hear in both the gospel of John, but also in 1 John. So John chapter 1 verses 4 through 5 says, "...in him was life, and the life was the light of men." The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then you look at first John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And then you have the theme of truth. So John three twenty one says, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And then you have first John one six. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So some similarities there. So and, and then furthermore, in the opening verses of, of John's both John's gospel and this first letter that John is writing to the churches, uh, they both open with the same type of, of preface. So the gospel of John opens with the preface, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and you know that, and he's speaking of Jesus there. Jesus is the Word. And then we have here in First John 1, 1, uh, John unpacking the Word of life. So the connection here between John's gospel and 1 John, one could say, generally speaking, that John's gospel is geared toward those who've yet to believe in Christ. So speaking, just speaking with those who don't yet know Jesus... John's Gospel is the first one I typically tell them to read because that's what John's gospel is geared to primarily do but John's letters, John one I mean first John, second John and third John are geared toward the assurance of those who have believed playing upon the themes that are found in the gospel account so much so that I, I something I really like um, there's a debate over whether this is what is actually happening but i I, I like it so I I think it's true, but, um, but so much so that some commentators believe that 1st John was written as kind of a commentary on the Gospel of John, where he specifically refutes the opponent's false teachings based on uh, what they are trying to refute or misinterpret from his Gospel accounts. So the Apostle John is our author. So who is he writing to? Well, much like Peter's letters, John is, uh, John's primary audience is the churches that he's had a hand in helping to start and pastor. And his letters are meant to, 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 uh, for Christian ears to encourage and build them up. But they also have the secondary, secondary goal of refuting those who don't believe the gospel rightly, which leads us into our second point the reality of the message that John is proclaiming. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So here is John giving instruction to his readers on this Christological reality. But as he's doing that, as he is as he is proclaiming Jesus. Um, um, from what he's seen and heard and done, he is also building a stronger foundation for his readers. The reality of the gospel is meant to change them. The reality of the gospel is meant to change you. That is what it does. So verse 1, John literally begins at the beginning. He's using Genesis language language here, like he does in John chapter one, verses one through two. John is telling his readers by using this Genesis language that what he is about to say in this short preface unfolds the purposes of God from eternity to eternity. In other words, the Christological reality is something that has always been true and will remain to be true. So in these three verses, John establishes this truth by pointing to the verifiable eyewitness testimony of the word of life, which is Christ. So John is beginning his letter with an eyewitness testimony account, which is his eyewitness testimony. So when you think about an eyewitness testimony or you think about anything in life that is important, so... This could be a wedding, it could be the birth of a child, it could be a murder, or some other type of crime. We watch a lot of true crime in our house, and murder is the first thing I go to. Um, but having eyewitnesses is always a good thing. And the more eyewitnesses you have on, say, some crime that was committed, the better. Well, the same is true for Christianity. The Bible is not a book of fiction written by fiction authors. The Bible is a true account written by eyewitnesses, or at least those who have spoken to eyewitnesses. So these are the eyewitnesses for these accounts that we read about. So in his book, uh, When Skeptics Ask, Norman Geisler says this. He says, most books from the ancient world are written by one person So I just got through reading Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. He is the only author of that book, which is something we hold to be true. This was a real man in real space and time, and he wrote this book, one author. So most books from the ancient world are written by one person. The New Testament has 27 books written by eight or nine different persons. The traditional authors include Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, Jude, and James. All of these were apostles of Jesus or their associates. Regardless of this, the record shows that they were contemporaries of Christ who were either eyewitnesses or who used the testimonies of eyewitnesses. End quote. And then, just specifically speaking about our author John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 27, this is where Jesus tells his disciples, uh, and John being one of them, And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus himself says, you are eyewitnesses of my life. You have heard my teachings. You have been with me through everything, and you will be my witnesses because of this. And then John 21, 24 speaks specifically about John, and this is what it says. This is the disciple speaking about John, who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Why do we know his testimony is true? Because he was an eyewitness. He walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He touched Jesus. He ate at the same table as he did, drank from the same cup as he did. He was an eyewitness. So that's how we know it's true. So John, if you were in a court case here, would be a, a key witness in a court case uh, if you wanted to prove the validity of who Jesus was. So another book, uh, the the uh, uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, written by New Testament scholar Richard Bauckham says, the beloved disciple, who is John, is portrayed in the fourth gospel as the ideal witness to Jesus. It is his witness that the gospel, the gospel of John, embodies. So this is why John, back to our text in verse John, this is why John can say over and over and over again in these verses, I have heard this message, I have seen this message, and I have touched this message. So John is not speaking metaphorically here. John is is using three of the five senses Hearing, sight, and touch to communicate to his audience his literal interaction that he has had with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So through this proclamation in verses uh, one through three, John is, is, is at the same time countering everything the false teachers are propagating against the church. So John's urgent message is to bring assurance to believers with a solid, Thoroughly, thoroughly biblical, physically witnessed Christology that stands the test of time. So verses three and four teach us, teaches us that to get it right with our Christology is to get, get it right when it comes to living the Christian life. If we understand who Jesus is from the Bible, that will uh, inevitably flow into our lives and change us. So what was happening amongst those trying to bring dissension in the church was that their misunderstanding of the gospel was also affecting the way in which they lived their lives. To the point that they were not only trying to break apart the church from the inside out, they were also claiming to be without sin. And in turn, they were showing hatred towards those within the church. So if if one has a faulty Christology, this is what this teaches, if you have a faulty Christology... If you believe something different about Jesus that is not found in the Bible, it will spill over into every other aspect of your life, including your conduct. So, and even more directly, it will affect our life together as the church. I mean, this is why we, again, why we have creeds and confessions that we confess together out loud to say, this is what we believe together so that we aren't torn apart because of differences of beliefs around Jesus. And because, as John says in verse 3, that the fellowship they have is the fellowship they have with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. This is why why it is so important for us to, to be grounded in the truth and reality of who Jesus is from the Bible, not from the culture, but from the Bible, because that is who we have fellowship with. So if we begin to 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 look to the culture to define who Jesus is for us or to divine Christianity for us, we no longer have fellowship with the Father and the Son Jesus Christ. So it, it is bound and woven into this, this fellowship we call the church. And there is nothing else that binds us together except this, except the truth and reality of Jesus. Our race does not uh, bind us together. Our our political ideologies do not bind us together. Our philosophical ideologies do not bind us together. Uh, More often than not, those tend to pull us apart. So I was reminded of the importance of this type of fellowship within the church as I watched a particular scene uh, a number of years ago in the film The Greatest Showman. So if you don't know, it's it's about how the circus comes comes to be, and C.T. Barnum is the main character here. And C.T. Barnum sees the need to attract more of an audience. And so he decides to push the envelope as far as he can in his recruiting task- tactics uh, of the outcast of society. And so to his, so he wants to bring these outcasts to his newly minted act. And so he, he writes this advertisement and then posts it everywhere around the city that reads this. Calling all freaks curiosities, and unique people to be part of the greatest show the world has ever seen. And it worked. It worked. It took one man like C.T. Barnum to bring together a group so different and, and, and put them in the same room together with a common purpose and success was had. Well, in a similar way, this is what the church is and what the gospel does. We, we could say we are all freaks, curiosities, and unique people in every single way. I'm your pastor, I know, I can say that. <laughs> truthfully. It brings together this ragtag bunch of people that would never come together in any other uh, set of circumstances than within the church, and then binds us by the one man, Jesus Christ. So I like the way my friend Ray Ortland puts it. He had this in his um, in his church bulletin in Nashville. He says, "Welcome to all who are, who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, to all who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and whoever will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers her welcome." in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what the church is. And so John ends his preface in in verse 4 saying, When we can grasp this reality of God in the flesh, and its unifying power amongst a diverse group of people, like the ones in this room, then, and only then, John says, is our joy made complete on earth, as it is going to be in heaven, which is our third point, the hope of the message. Now, this isn't necessarily the hope, as in Jesus Christ is the hope. I mean, He is always the hope of the message. I hope, but what? But what John is saying here is, this is what I hope. Uh, this is what I hope results from this message that he has here in verses one through four. John is is hoping uh, that. Uh, His joy will be made complete. Just look at verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So like I said earlier, John's message is twofold. The first goal is to encourage and build up believers. And the second goal is refuting those who don't teach the Bible rightly. And so the way he's doing that is he, is he is preaching and proclaiming this message of reconciliation. He's not just attacking these false teachers, but, but by doing that, he is doing that. He is attacking these false teachers. So by doing this, by having a twofold message, we, it shows us that he's not merely addressing these churches out of thin air. He has cause for the way he's writing and what exactly he's writing about. So much like 2 Peter Uh, uh, Peter's second letter, John is seeking to warn his readers of those who threaten the integrity of the apostolic faith. So so both authors, Peter and John, refer to these types of people who, who bring this sort of threat to the church as false prophets or false teachers. And John, I love John's language here because he is unapologetic when he calls these false prophets things like liars deceivers, and antichrist. Over and over again in John's letter, he does this, and you'll see it. So much like the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 when he was about to leave the church, Paul says these words to the, to the elders of this church. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them, Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And this is exactly what is happening within the churches that John is writing to. They are going to encounter wolves. And these are not just wolves that will come in from the outside. These are wolves that will rise up from within the church. These are wolves that they are already encountering who had uh, seceded from the church and were propagating a twisted form of the gospel. Which, just so you know, this is happening right now in our world. There are people who are preaching a twisted form of the gospel and many follow, many follow. So these who have seceded from the church because they say uh, they have received a special anointing of the Spirit and began to proclaim a different message from what John had been proclaiming from the Scriptures. So some of the main issues was that their message held a different view on the person and work of Christ. They had a different Christology. They had a different understanding of who Jesus was, and it wasn't from the Scriptures. So as well as they had a different understanding of, uh, because they had a different understanding of who Christ was and what he did, they had a different understanding uh, towards Christians' obligations to keep God's commands found in the Scriptures, namely to believe in his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. Do those commands sound familiar? Those are the Those are the commands that Jesus gave, and Jesus proclaimed as the two greatest commandments in all of the Scriptures. To love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And these false teachers are saying, you don't have to do that. That's not what, that's not what Jesus was about. So their teachings boiled down to an unbiblical view of Jesus, which then flowed into how they lived their life. And this is what, this is what it included. And you'll see this laced throughout 1 John. One is the denial of the Son the denial that Jesus was actually the Son of God. Two is the denial that Jesus had come in the flesh. So did did God actually put on flesh and come to be with us? And then third, the denial that Jesus is the Christ, which means the denial that Jesus is the Messiah, the denial that Jesus is the only Savior of the world. Now John's purpose in writing his letters is Is not to engage these wolves directly. If we were to if we were to do that all the time as as preachers and teachers of God's word, that is all we would ever do. We would constantly there's always something new coming up in the culture. There's always something new that is arising, some new truth, some new uh, some new thing that, that people say they believe now. But instead, this is what we should do. It's what John does. He sees his responsibility to the church primarily and to show them how these secessionists, these these false teachers, were false, and then to prevent his readers from being deceived, much like Peter does in 2 Peter. So simply, John was making sure their Christology, their belief about Jesus was strong and right according to the Scriptures. That's simply what John was doing. Because to get Jesus wrong... Let me just, listen to me on this. To get Jesus wrong is to get everything else about Christianity wrong. Dr. Al Mohler, speaking about the the importance of the deity of Christ, writes, when we talk about the divinity of Christ, or even more properly, the deity of Christ, the fact that he is fully God, we are talking about the central claim of the New Testament concerning who Christ is. What we are told is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. The moment we back off of either of those, we no longer have Jesus. The only way we can explain Jesus in terms of his deity is exactly as the Bible declares him. We are told that he is the son of the living God. This is the most fundamental fact preached by the early church. And what we have, for instance, from the Apostle Paul, what he writes in Colossians, our assurance is that Actually, he, Jesus, is the great power over all things. In him, all things are created. He has all powers under his feet. That can be said only of God. You take, you take that out, we have no gospel, we have no Jesus, and we have no Christianity. End quote. So this is why John is saying in verse 4, we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Not, we're writing these things to combat false teachers. No, they want the joy of knowing that these believers believe rightly about Christ. Because to believe rightly about the Christ is to to, to believe rightly about everything else. Or at least it sets you going in the right direction. So John's own joy in Christ cannot be complete, he says, if fellow believers that he is responsible for are in danger of departing from the truth and in fellowshipping with those false teachers, whom John, throughout his letter, will prove to be bogus and false. So just last words here. This is why it's so important. Not only for John's readers during this time to grasp, but also for us today, John's current readers, right now, to understand to understand that Jesus is the Son of God, to, to comprehend that Jesus has come in the flesh, and to grasp the reality that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the only Messiah, and that there is no other way to the Father except through Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for a new book of the Bible to study and read and learn from, and I pray, God, that you would continue to give us wisdom and insight as we do so over these uh, next uh, couple of months. So, God, I pray that you would help us to be a place that proclaims uh, the truth, reality, and relevancy of Jesus Christ from the Bible. I pray that we would never get that wrong. It is so easy. All we have to do is step, step uh, out, out of this way in which you've called us in just a small way, and we are way off track. And so, God, I pray that you would keep us strong in the faith. I pray that you would keep us uh, strong in the gospel as your people and that this would be the message that we proclaim, that Jesus Christ is, is, is God in the flesh, that Jesus Christ is, is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And I pray that that would be what drives our lives. And We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.